I can still remember in the fifth grade, this incredibly epic snow day in late January. I grew up in a place that regularly got decent snow, so we didn't have many days off for snow days. But when you did get one, you knew it was going to be good. The wind was whipping up a frenzy and you couldn't see 30 feet in front of your face, which left behind these huge meandering snow berms all throughout my yard. Tall ones, three, four, five feet tall. Perfect fodder for snow forts. My friends came over and we spent all day carving out trenches and tunnels and waging massive snowball fights. That was in the fifth grade, and I never had another snow day like it. Those of us approaching our middle age find ourselves starting to lament things gone by. And every winter, worthy snow days are certainly one of them. A common refrain among my group of friends is, we just don't have winters like we used to. It's often passed over as rose-tinted nostalgia. But you know what? It's true. No one born after 1985 has lived through a normal year on planet Earth. Every year of our lives has been warmer than the 20th century average. This statement is from a powerful book called Under the Sky We Make, and I'm honored to have the author, Dr. Kimberly Nicholas, as my guest today. We're going to talk about the seriousness and urgency of climate change, what needs to be done to give ourselves a fighting chance of slowing it down enough that we can imagine our grandkids living in a world that we would actually recognize. And importantly for this audience, what role do advisors play? This is not going to be an easy one, folks. So buckle up. It's going to be a roller coaster ride. And as Cam notes in her book, we'll get into all the feels, good and bad, grief and hope. We'll also get into what you and I can do to make a difference. And spoiler alert, it might feel like the problem is too big and too intense for one person to matter, but you do. As you'll hear, the choices you make matter. Hi, Kim. How are you? It's so nice to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Stephen. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us just real quick, where are you dialing in from today? I am in Lund, Sweden. So Sweden is kind of shaped like California, and I am basically in the San Diego of Sweden. But it is certainly colder here than in San Diego. I was going to say, it's probably not quite the 75 and sunny that we get in San Diego. No, that's right. Yeah, but it's uh, it's, it's actually pretty mild. It's more similar weather-wise to Vancouver. So it's uh, we've been doing pretty well, and the days are definitely getting longer now. It's mid-February, so spring feels like it will happen. <laughs> Good, good, good. There's a light at the end of the tunnel there. That's great. So obviously here to talk about your book and, and the, the science and, and climate change and what's within it. Um, and then I wanted to also chat with you about your experience as a scientist on this hugely important issue, what that's like, um, a little bit about what it was like to write the book. But before we get into anything, you know, in the middle of your book, you brought up a really good point, which you just laid out what the scientific process is. And I thought we should start there because I think there's a lot of people that they hear scientists and they think, oh, you know everything about your field. It's it's this fact, it's this and that. And I think it's important to just set the groundwork about what is a scientific process. Sure. Well, science is a process for discovering the nature of reality. And we do that by finding evidence and trying to test hypotheses or ask and answer questions, really, at the most basic. That's what my PhD advisor told me that research is, asking and answering questions. So, you know, as he said, it's simple, but not easy. So it does take a while to really get good at. But ultimately, we're, we're trying to construct a, an understanding of how the world works and using in some way, our senses. So things we can touch or see, maybe with the help of tools like microscopes or telescopes, um, but based on observation. And the reason that's important is because then other people can replicate it. They can test it. They can see if our observations hold in other contexts. They can try to answer the same question using different tools or methods. And if we keep getting the same answer, we get more and more confidence that we've landed on something that holds and makes sense. And can you talk a little bit about consensus? Because you, you do mention that in the book, both its importance within the scientific process, but also its importance for, uh, I guess we use the term lay people when they're trying to digest what the scientific community is telling them. 
Yes, I love to talk about consensus because it's so important to the process of science and it's so misunderstood, as you said. So consensus is, uh, John Cook, I have a quote in the book, which I will probably now mangle, but he says something like, it's when scientific consensus happens when the overwhelming evidence piles up so that you can no longer swim against the tide. So basically, sometimes in science, we have competing views or theories or explanations for what is it we're seeing, what's causing this, what, what is the process underway here. And at the beginning, nobody knows and people have different ideas and advance different suggestions. And through the process of testing those suggestions, some hold up to testing and evidence and some don't. And the ones that don't work fall by the wayside. And the reason this is relevant for climate change is because there is such an overwhelmingly strong scientific consensus that the earth is warming, it's us, we're sure it's bad, and we can fix it. Those are the things that have a really strong scientific consensus. And especially the, the first three there, of it's warming, it's us, we're sure, that's been really unequivocally established now, and including in the latest um, UN IPCC report, which is both a scientific and a political report. So something that gets, you know, gets through by all the most rigorous science and scientists reviewing each other's work in the process of peer review, looking for errors, trying to find any mistakes, and all the governments of the world saying, yes, there's overwhelming evidence. We, even if we don't like this conclusion, we can't deny that it's the truth. That's what scientific consensus is. And that's what we have, that humans are warming the climate because of primarily burning fossil fuels and deforestation. Okay. So let's actually get into the the kind of uh, dire facts of climate change. We, we've heard a lot in the last year or so, especially around uh, COP26, um, you know, Alok Sharma, keep 1.5 alive. Can you tell folks why that's important and, and maybe what the difference is between a globe that warms by a degree and a half Celsius versus two, three, or maybe even four degrees Celsius? Yeah, I think it's really hard to wrap our heads around the fact that we're actually alive at the most critical time for humanity and really a lot of life on earth ever. And the reason for that is because we have added, humans have added so much carbon and climate pollution to the atmosphere, we've already caused a little over one degree of warming. And that really doesn't sound like much, especially one degree Celsius, you know, you don't need an extra sweater if it's one degree Celsius warmer or colder outside. But the earth is really a living system. And one degree in our bodies is the difference between being healthy, one degree too hot is a fever, two degrees you're really sick, three degrees you're at the hospital. And that's an analogy to the situation we face now with life on Earth. Basically, all life on Earth depends on the th thermostat, the climate, of who can live where. How can we, both humans and the eight million species we share the planet with, how can we make a living? And basically, everything that we love, all the people and places that we love, are dependent on a relatively stable climate. And what we're doing now is really destabilizing the climate in some very dangerous ways. So that's why it's so important for health, for agriculture, for the beauty of ecosystems, for hiking in the mountains. For My PhD was about wine and, and climate change in California. So we can survive, I'm told, without wine. I don't want to have to try, but you know, wine, among other things, is very sensitive to climate change and already being affected. Can you maybe provide a little, and I ask this because it's, it is in the book, and I, no, I don't want to just read the book out loud for our audience. I'd rather have them go read it. But can you provide a few more details about what does our world look like if we kind of let this go and we don't act and we get to two degrees or three or, like we said, even four degrees? What does that actually look like for us? I think it, as a basic summary, um, so the goal of climate policy is to limit and ultimately stop human-caused warming. And the faster we stop burning fossil fuels, the faster we can do that, and the lower the temperature will stabilize at. And the more options there are for humans and other life on Earth. So basically, in rough terms, if we manage to stabilize the climate around 1.5 degrees warmer, many there's many more options for adaptation. It's possible to continue on. Um, things will be more difficult. There will be more dangerous weather extremes, for example, to cope with, but it's within the realm of coping capacity for um, many systems. 
even though it sounds so tiny, the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees of warming globally is really the difference between life and death for many places and ecosystems and even people. There are whole island nations, the, the entire system of coral reefs, which is the foundation of the food chain and the fisheries of the ocean, many other systems that we expect to lose if we do not manage to keep the 1.5 degrees goal. And at the moment, scarily enough, we're headed for something like two and a half to three degrees of warming. And that is a planet that we would not recognize. It's really hard to imagine continuing the many of the systems that we have in terms of agriculture, many of the cities that we have that are built on the coast, um, which is vulnerable to sea level rise. They're just going to be really, really, really difficult and catastrophic effects that I think will would involve a lot of suffering. So the goal is to prevent as much climate change as we possibly can, to prepare for the changes that we can't avoid, and to prevent suffering. And we're going to face some mix of those three, and, and the faster we can stop burning fossil fuels, the less suffering humans and nature will experience. You mention in the book this idea of both and. And I thought that was really fascinating because uh, I'm a I'm a creature of the interweb, so I spend probably too much time, you know, doom scrolling various social media platforms and just just watching what's going on. Yeah. And you you start to see two camps emerge. You see, uh, as far as people who are trying to fight climate change, so they're they're effectively on the same side, but you kind of see two camps. You see the people who are are roiling and angry at the fossil fuel companies, at big business. And, and they say, you, you have to stop them. All the fossil fuel companies, it's their fault. They have to be held accountable. They have to stop immediately. And then you kind of have the other camp that says, well, that's never going to happen. Big business is too powerful. So it's the individual. We have to do our part. You know, switch to LED, start recycling, don't use plastic straws, etc. And it can feel like they're kind of butting heads a little bit. And what would you say to that? Because, you know, you do talk about it in the book, and I think you present a really compelling argument there. But but what, what would you say to that? We have to hold fossil fuel companies accountable for this information that is well documented. And we also have to reduce overconsumption in order to make a fast and fair transition to a world that avoids catastrophic climate change. So we really need both of those things. I mean, it's unfortunately become really abundantly clear, both from investigative journalism, from now a number of legal actions, from research by Naomi Oreskes at Harvard and others, that there is a real record of fossil fuel companies uh, having a deliberate disinformation campaign where, for example, internal documents clearly showed that human humans burning fossil fuels would warm the climate and was already warming the climate where companies were paying for ads to so doubt about that question to say there was scientific uncertainty and we should wait to act. Um, so I think the people who are angry have a right to be angry and there's a lot of uh, injustice to be dealt with. At the same time, and I think it's a really interesting and, and unanswered question, what should happen to the fossil fuel companies? Do they have a role in a future that avoids catastrophic climate change? I genuinely don't know the answer to that. And I think that's a question that needs to be debated socially. I think it's clear that burning fossil fuels is incompatible with a safe climate. We just don't have the option of burning fossil fuels any longer. It's We've used up almost all of our carbon budget. At the moment, we have about 90 months left of our carbon budget for 1.5 degrees. And that carbon budget is for all of humanity for all of time. Every human who ever has or ever will lived, more than 90 plus percent of the carbon we can burn and stay within this essential limit for life has already been burned. So it's just not feasible or realistic to think that we will continue to get our energy from burning coal, oil, and gas. At the same time, we have an unequal distribution of consumption. And there's a group in the world who cause 50% of household carbon emissions which is a globally really significant source. And I used to be in that group, or I am in that group by income. So if you earn over $38,000 per year, you're in the top 10 richest percent of people on earth. And I think that takes many Americans by surprise, but a lot of people live on very modest budgets and actually have 
room to increase their climate pollution because it's so low. What we should be aiming for is somewhere between two, two and a half tons per person per year of emissions by 2030, which is very soon. And the, this group of high earners tends to have very high carbon footprints, primarily from flying and driving are the biggest sources. So we do need behavior change, not, not in the areas you mentioned about recycling and straws, but for reducing fossil fuel overconsumption, which is mostly from mobility from this high emitting group. It, that was something that really, really struck a chord with me. How much of a difference that individuals can make, especially that group of the top 10%, just by making some lifestyle uh, choices. I think people hear that and they say, oh, but I, I need to go on vacation. I have to fly for work. I have to commute, et cetera, et cetera. So how can folks wrap their heads around making that change? Because it feels like it's a huge sacrifice and, oh, we're going to destroy our way of living and, and how can we possibly do this? You know, what's, what's the kind of mental uh, strategy that, that folks need to think about for this? I've been in this position myself because I'm a former frequent flyer. So in 2010, I took 15 round trip flights some for work, uh, some for seeing family and friends, many interviewing for jobs, including this job in Sweden, which I took moving from California. And at the time, I really didn't think about the pollution that I was locking in by making that decision to work so far away in an ocean away from my family and, and some of my closest friends. So that has been a real um, journey for me. And for me, what tipped the balance was basically being inspired by my friend Charlie, who had stopped flying within Europe. So we met at a climate conference in Vienna and I had flown there and he had taken the train and we live about an equal distance away uh, respectively. So I spent all day at this very depressing climate meeting looking, you know, and this was 10 years ago now. So even then there was lots of data on how bad it is, how bad it is going to be, how urgently we need to change. And yet I was just really struck by this feeling looking around this room of my friends and colleagues. I flew here. I know that that is about 70% of my carbon footprint at that time, being a frequent flyer. Most of my colleagues probably also flew here. I feel like we're a group of doctors puffing on cigarettes and telling our patients they have to quit. So I finally just had a, a moment of reckoning with the cognitive dissonance of it, basically. And I think it was having a, a wonderful friend who was a, easy to talk to and over a couple of beers have this discussion of okay, how can I approach this? And I think for me, I had been afraid to even think about it because reducing my own flying because I live in Sweden. My family's in California. I didn't see a way to completely give up flying. And therefore, I had really been avoiding thinking, is it possible for me to cut any flights? And once I started that conversation, I realized that it was. And it helped me a lot to have this kind of rule of thumb of, okay, I don't fly within my continent. So that means if I'm going to go somewhere, it'll take me longer to get there. I need to plan. It needs to be really worth my while. I don't want to go somewhere far away for a one-hour meeting in person. Um, mm -hmm. I need to plan journeys so that I can take advantage of it. And yeah, it was it was really a process where overall my flying has decreased about ninety to ninety-five percent. I haven't stopped completely, but I do still fly about once a year to see my my family in North America. But for example, it's actually been a lot more fun and interesting than I thought it would be. And I consider that it led to romance. So on my fourth date with my now husband, we took the train to Paris. And I kind of thought this will never really work. I mean, we don't really know each other that well. This might end in disaster. Well, um, well look, I have to say, just from an outsider, wouldn't you say we took the train to Paris? I mean, that <laughs> sounds like a pretty magical date. Uh, it, <laughs> it was pretty great. It was pretty great. And we liked each other better when we arrived. And then for our wedding, we he's from Edmonton in Canada. His family is living there now. So we, we flew from Sweden to Edmonton and our um, parents and siblings gathered there. And then we spent about three and a half weeks traveling by train through North America and being hosted at, I think it was 16 different locations. Friends and family had small gatherings for us. So with, you know, sometimes just one other couple or 10 or 12 people around a table. And we had such quality time with those people. 
uh, in the places where they were, where they could show us the best of their region and, you know, share beer that they had brewed and, I mean, really connect with the people that we cared about in a meaningful way on a train adventure that was then part of the journey. So I guess that's that's just one example, but I think it is possible to get started. These things that feel really difficult are maybe the hardest part actually is getting started. And I think a good goal, if it sounds like impossible or unrealistic in your current situation, start with flights. That's definitely, if you fly, that's definitely your biggest source of emissions. And as we've learned in these last couple of years, there are a lot of flights that we can avoid. It's possible to avoid. Yeah, I think you can start with, okay, what do I want if I want a vacation? Um, How can I have adventure and enjoy a beautiful natural place and be somewhere relaxing? Does that actually have to be a tropical beach or could I get those needs or wishes fulfilled in another way? And I think it can make you more creative and, and open actually a lot of new doors. You know, something else that you speak of quite a bit in the book, and it, and it's and it's frankly one reason why I really enjoyed this, was this this idea of finding new meaning. And and you kind of mentioned it there with your with your wedding celebration that you spent three and a half weeks and you were able to spend quality time with, with people rather than maybe the traditional everyone comes for one whirlwind weekend, they fly from around the world. Um, you say hi to everyone for about 10 minutes because you're so busy saying hi to everyone for 10 minutes. Can you just talk about what that can mean for folks to find a new meaning as they're approaching changing their carbon output and, and they're, they're fighting their fight against climate change? Yeah, I, to me, that is really at the heart of so much change and making change lasting and sustainable and fun and, and joyful and actually motivating in and of itself that it feels good to align your behavior and to spend your time and money in ways that you think are important and meaningful and give you purpose and joy. And I mean, that sounds obvious, but when you look at, you know, we were talking about doom scrolling earlier. One of the best things that I did in 2021, I decided, okay, I'm not going to bring my phone into the bedroom. And that meant that I read a hundred books in 2021. Um, Mostly because, so when I thought about that, And I set time limits on my phone now for half an hour um, for social media. And I frequently override that time limit, but at least I make a semi-conscious decision, you know, like... You're thinking about it, yeah. Yeah, the the better angels of my nature are telling me, hey, is it really good for you to still be on this app? And I think, no, probably not, but I'm going to anyway. But at least I have that, you know, internal dialogue somehow. So I guess when we think about, you know, looking back on our lives and that's something I write a lot about in the book you know different perspectives on time and how we can see our time on earth as part of this bigger human story and the fact that our carbon legacies are going to outlive us by so many thousands of years and play such a huge role in setting the possibilities for everyone basically to Mm -hmm. think about things from this bigger perspective and you know how are we spending our time money and carbon and that really adds up to who are we and what do we value? And is that today, if we look at our, our lives today, is that adding up to something that we will look back on and be proud of, that we would be happy to have on our tombstones, that we would want others to say about us at the end of our lives? And it really gives you an opportunity to, to reflect on that and to think about, okay, what really matters to me? How can I prioritize that and you know lead what I call the, the low-carbon high life? I mean, where can I do things that actually nurture me and feed my soul and feel meaningful. And that often doesn't have to be about consumption or burning fossil fuels because it's often relationships. I mean, you know, spoiler alert, that's actually the biggest thing that makes life meaningful. Our relationships with other people and uh, with place and nature are at the heart of it. So that can be very low carbon. You know, I'm curious what your take on this is because in my work in multimedia, a lot of my time has been spent traveling So I have friends around the country. And if you think about, okay, well, a low carbon lifestyle means maybe I'm flying less or not at all. Will I ever see these people again? And clearly you've been a bit of a globetrotter yourself. Your family's in uh, California. Uh, Your spouse uh, is from Canada. You have colleagues from around the world. Have you found that you've been able to maintain those connections in good and meaningful ways? Or have you had to maybe let go of some people because there's just, you're just not going to physically see them 
enough to, to keep that connection? Yeah, that's such a good question. And this is what uh, George Monbiot calls love miles. And these are the toughest. When we're talking about traveling to see people that we love, that is really hard to substitute. It's not the same as saying, okay, I want to relax. Maybe I can take a hiking vacation closer to home. You know, it's like, I want to give my mom a hug. And to do that, I have to be in California or she has to be here. And that is a lot of carbon because it's far away. So when I reflect on it now, I realize I have locked myself into some pretty unsustainable patterns by having a job and a life and an apartment and, you know, family and, or not, well, people who feel like family now and friends here mm-hmm. and family and others so far away. But given that that's the case, um, so I guess, you know, one thing to think about is me, if I were me now, 12 years ago, I wouldn't apply for a job 10,000 kilometers from home or 6,000 miles from home. Um, because I would realize the lock-in that that entails. But that said, Mm -hmm. we live in the world we live in now, and I mean, your question about friends all over the country, I think you can still see them. You can still find ways to see them, but, you know, maybe it won't be flying a weekend a month around different parts of the country. Maybe it will be Mm -hmm. taking a longer holiday where you link things together and try traveling by train or take a bike trip or, I mean, sail Mm -hmm. or find other ways. Um, or maybe that's where, you know, if you're a frequent flyer now and you can get down to one flight a year to see people or try to figure out, okay, how can everybody gather? You know, where's, where's the map of where everybody lives? What's the central point so that we can minimize the travel overall? How can we come together? And that's it. I mean, I have maintained a lot of relationships from distance. Some have also, you know, I haven't maintained and I think, but the ones that really, matter and are the most essential friendships to me I, I have maintained over distance and of course there's always the friends where you can go 10 years with barely talking and when you do see each other you're just you're right back in it because it's just that true friendship yeah I mean those are really important to maintain so you know one other thing that I did want to ask you about real quick was wine you did your PhD study on it you you do mention it frequently um, and, and certainly not trying to paint you or anyone else as a lush, but I just thought it was a nice uh, personal note about yourself that you got into the book, and it certainly resonated. I'm more of a beer guy myself, but I can appreciate the general vibes. Can you just talk a little bit about why wine has been important to you? And, you know, it's, it's kind of funny to talk about, but it, I mean, in a serious note, it's definitely led aspects of your career. Um, why does it str- ring a bell for you? Yeah, well, I grew up in Sonoma, which is about an hour north of San Francisco. It's a big, important wine growing area. Wine is really the lifeblood of the local economy, of many people's livelihoods, either directly working in the wine industry or working in, you know, hotel and service and restaurants and other um, industries that benefit from wine tourism and, and the wine industry. It really shaped the landscape of, that I grew up in and... Um, yeah, it's just a really, it was on our dinner table when I was growing up. Um, so I think I chose to study wine because it is this, you know, I'm interested in the relationship between people and nature. And to me, wine is a really interesting example of that relationship where you need nature to grow great wine. And even, you know, I've interviewed some of the most talented winemakers in Napa and Sonoma who freely admit, you know, even a genius can't make great wine from bad grapes. So you need nature to do its part and have the right climate and soil and conditions to grow great wine grapes. Then you also need people to take care of those vineyards, to harvest the wine at the right time, to treat it in the right way, the grapes in the right way to become great wine. So that's always really spoken to me. And I think I chose um, the wine industry um, kind of by chance, I the first scientific study I pu- was a co-author on uh, my first year of my PhD at Stanford was a study of what California would look like under different possible climate futures. And my supervisor was focused on agriculture. And I printed out a list of the top crops in California. And number one at that time was dairy. And number two was grapes. And I said, oh, I grew up in Sonoma, I can do grapes. So I started learning more and more about wine, and it just became clear to me it was this important example of a climate-sensitive crop, something that people relate to. Wine is really climate change you can taste. And I think making climate change often, I mean, a problem with climate change is that people 
struggle to relate to it. It feels far away in space and time, like it's something that's going to happen or happening maybe to someone else and somewhere else. And that's no longer true for anyone on Earth. We are all living in a place and on a planet that has been changed by climate change. And I think trying to bring it closer to home and study something that many people might have on their dinner table um, was just an important way for me to try to make those connections more clear. There was a beautiful quote in the book from a grower. I'm going to find it. I took a note of it. Um, so bear with me one second here. You mentioned you can taste climate change. And this is a grower talking about taste. It's a, a, a type of Pinot Noir, and I'll probably butcher the name, so apologies, but Carneros Pinot Noir. And you talk to the grower and you mentioned this was one of your favorite wines of all time. And, and you think that it might be gone now because the climate has changed the grapes. But the grower said, I opened a bottle and it smelled like Carneros, the smell of the grass and the wind and the sunshine. Yeah, I really remember that conversation. I mean, I remember sitting in her office and that's like more than almost 20 years ago now. Yeah. So it's 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 just it's so true. And it's it resonates so well. Well, thank you. And I mean, that is something that makes this work really tough because it is really difficult to face the loss of things that we love. And I mean, climate is changing in California. Growers are experiencing it. Um, yeah, I do have this fear that I won't have the chance to taste that exact wine again because that climate is changed. And I don't know for a fact that that's true, but that that really haunts me and living with that uncertainty is, is tough. And I mean, that's part of, I think for me, the key is to both acknowledge grief and loss and also find ways to keep going on. So it's a balance. I mean, I think some people, there's a, a saying saying don't grieve or don't mourn organize. And I don't support that because I think we do need to acknowledge, you know, I mean, my, hometown has been fundamentally reshaped by catastrophic wildfires since the last five years or so. And that's just a complete change of state from my childhood and what that place was like. So we have to acknowledge difficult realities, but also there's still so much that we love that is here and now and worth fighting for. And that balance, I think, is, you know, that kind of is another kind of both and that it's not either or, you know, grieve or act, but we can do both at the same time. Kim, why, why did you sit down and write this book? I wanted to write for friends, really my friends from college who were starting to have a climate wake up. And I guess I wanted a one-stop shop for people who know the climate is changing, are concerned about it, and then get stuck. They might not see the connections between their everyday lives and climate change. And especially they might not be, a lot of people, especially now, I mean, it was just in the New York Times uh, in the last week, many people are coping with difficult climate emotions about grief and fear and anger. And I think finding ways to handle those is essential for us to be able to take effective action. And especially people don't know how they can help. And the overwhelming Thing that I hear from people is they want to help. They want to be useful. They want to take action and they want to know what actions really make a difference. Where can I personally be of service and you know what can I do in a bigger way than, I mean, many people care about or start with their own um, consumption or lifestyle, which is the path I took as well. And I think is, is really important, but there are also many ways we can act as citizens, as investors, as role models, as parts of organizations and trying to kind of give people a menu to choose from and see, you know, here's what the evidence shows is really effective. Here are ways that you can engage, you know, which of these resonate for you and hopefully give people inspiration to, to get started and to stay on that journey. You mentioned several times that in your work as a scientist uh, dealing with climate change, that, that on, on bad days, you feel like your work isn't making a difference. Do you feel like, and certainly not, not that you say every day feels like that, but just every so often, but you know, in writing this book and it's out in the public now, how do you feel about the, the meaning that this book has brought? I feel very personally gratified, but also 
keenly aware that it is such a tiny contribution compared to the magnitude of the scale of the problem. So I, I guess I'm trying to hold both of those at the same time that I'm really grateful and appreciative for the connections I've made with readers, people who have reached out to me and, um, that the book has spoken to in some way or the people who have written really lovely notes and that feels really good. But at the same time, I mean, yeah, the problem's really big. We've got these 90 months, the carbon clock is ticking. I hope it's helpful for people to hear that because I think many people feel, I guess I just want to say, I think it's normal to feel like that. And it's almost impossible to feel like any of us are quote unquote doing enough. So we shouldn't let that stand in our way of doing what we can. I mean, I really am devoting most of my waking hours to climate and Mm -hmm. it still feels like, can I really say that I'm making a difference? I don't know, but I am doing it anyway because I'm doing the best I can. I'm learning from mistakes. I'm, and from others who inspire me, I'm, I'm trying to figure out constantly, you know, what can I offer? What do I have to give and where can it be useful to stop climate change? And I think that's a relevant question for everybody. I mean, everyone's answer will be different depending on what your skills and, and preferences are. But I, I guess I hoped a little bit to model that as a process and not something that is, you know, a one-time answer, but mm-hmm. something that, you know, asking those questions of how can I be of service in this really important and unique moment of human history in stopping climate change and, and centering people in nature and making life on earth better for us now and for everyone. That's a really important question that we should keep asking ourselves. And it is inherently meaningful to work towards answering that question, but we probably will never be done answering it. So I guess I will hope to encourage people that, you know, even if you don't feel like, oh, that letter to the editor or calling my senator or showing up at, you know, this local city council hearing or voting or changing, uh, you know, skipping that one flight. Is that enough? No, it's not enough. But is it worth doing? Yes, it is. And you do have a bigger impact than you think. Most of the time, you no one will ever tell you that you impacted them, but you might be doing it anyway. For our audience of mostly financial advisors and investors, what would you say to them as something that they could do, especially I'll say in their professional lives, you know, advisors, many of them have tens, possibly up to a hundred clients. Many of these clients are definitely fall within that 10%, right? Of over $38,000 in income. So it's, it is the, the global elite, uh, at least economically. What would you say to them as far as what's, what's something they can do right now to get started with this process? That is such an important group. And I mean, I think many people who have those kind of financial investments probably fall in in the top 1% globally. That's if you earn $109,000 or more per year. So that group has so much power and control. And at the moment, it's um, it just could be used so much more effectively. So to answer your question, I think it would be wonderful if financial advisors were taking carbon risk seriously, if they recognized investments that are based on continuing to burn fossil fuels are a material risk to my client. Those are coal, oil, and gas are not valuable resources and commodities. They are liabilities. We're not going to be burning them for very much longer. And we have some collective denial about that fact, but the sooner we have, the sooner we get away from them and have an organized and reasonable plan to make a a fair transition, the better we all will be. So I divested my own investment portfolio about five years ago. Um, And there's a tool, Fossil Free Funds, that you can use to look at the carbon footprint of investments. I really wish investment advisors were kind of took that as their baseline and were serious about, you know, eliminating fossil investments from people's portfolios. I'm not a professional investor, so I mean, I hesitate to give specific advice, but one, I personally have invested in um, something called Etho Capital. And what I understand is that recommended by a friend, they have quite a rigorous screening process where they have a diversified fund that includes all sectors except fossil fuels and uh, only climate leaders within each sector. So it's companies that already 
have quite seriously begun decarbonizing. And if we are going to succeed at actually stopping dangerous climate change, those are the companies who are going to be around and are going to profit in the future because they've already taken many of the important steps there ahead of the curve. So I think looking at, at climate risk and steering investments, I mean, divestment and re from fossil fuels and reinvestment in sustainable alternatives is a really important strategy. And I mean, that started with universities, um, but it also includes banks. I mean, there's a report called Banking on the Climate Crisis, which was very eye-opening. It caused me to uh, take my U.S. account out of Bank of America and put it in a local mm. credit union. Essentially, all of the big banks in the U.S. and internationally are still funding fossil fuel expansion and exploration, and that's just incompatible with uh, meeting agreed climate goals. So it's against both science and democratically agreed policy. So I think people from within the finance system holding those banks accountable, stating really clearly what you want them to do, and if they don't do it, taking your money out of them is a really important and very powerful move. That falls into the category of I'm one person, what what can I really do? And when it comes to individuals' finances, and that that is, of course, something that, that we talk about on the podcast and investment news all the time, divestment, if enough people do it, it's just like voting. You know, one person removing uh, fossil fuels from their portfolio may not do much, right? Someone else is just going to buy those shares. But if you get enough people to do it, it does start to make a difference and companies take notice and uh, asset managers take notice. So it is, it is absolutely a viable strategy. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you bring it up. I think that's great. And we have good evidence now, actually. I mean, the divestment campaigns have been going on for more than 10 years. So we have quite a bit of evidence that they do work. Um, and that they don't cause as much reinvestment and that they start to shift whole industries and, and sectors away from from climate pollution. So I do think it's an effective strategy. And one thing, I mean, a personal wish I guess I can make of your listeners is I really wish that um, investment advisors were more educated about climate and understood these risks. I mean, whenever I've um, had an investment advisor, they really don't talk about climate at all or carbon footprint or you know they they have no idea which companies um i mean okay you can guess that exxon has a high carbon footprint but there are a lot of companies that um aren't directly fossil fuel companies but still have a big footprint and i think i would love to have an ad advisor who <laughs> knows about that and who reads you know the market and knows where things are going and, and how to advise. So if one of your listeners is that, please get in touch. But I mean, no, I, I'm fine. I'm set up now. But I think because these people are advising, um, yeah, a really important group of folks, um, they can have a huge impact. And I don't, you, maybe, you know, in, in your space, is there a group of uh, finance advisors that's really focused on um, low carbon portfolios and evaluation? And yeah, there must be, right? There is, and, and it's probably all the folks listening to this podcast, which is great. But I mean, is there a formal organization? Like, is there a, a formal one? That I'm not aware of. Or, okay. there, there is, you know, this general ESG movement, which is kind of just a, right. an umbrella name for many different strategies that, that folks will use. It's sustainable investing, you know, all of these different taglines, if you will. Mm -hmm. There are a number of advisors that are doing this, investors that are doing this. It is a growing movement really rapidly. Um, you know, we've seen that the pandemic has sort of shown a light on a lot of issues, both mm -hmm. climate, uh, we've seen the climate disasters of the last year, the social justice movement, especially here in the United States. It's kind of all come together at once to create this big firestorm where investors are saying, hang on, I can actually put my money to work doing good for the world. Yeah. I didn't know you could do that. That's great. How do I do this? So yeah. in the United States, it's definitely a, a, a burgeoning movement. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot left to go. This is what the podcast is about is, right. is that idea and concept, right? I think, you know, you mentioned you wish that advisors would be more educated in carbon and, and, and how that affects. And it, it's, it's just this whole circle, right? Because there was something in the book, I, I, I wasn't going to bring it up just for time, but, but you mentioned when people think about their budgets and how they live, it's always the two big items, right? Time and money. And your argument is there's a third item and it's carbon. And how much carbon can you spend? You know, you've talked about the budget. We have 90 months. Each person should be aiming for two, two and a half tons, right? 
well, what if we got advisors to start to include that mentality and apply that to themselves, to their business, to their clients and to their portfolios? You know, because there yeah. is a lot of chatter about, oh, we need a fossil fuel free portfolio or a low carbon or net zero. But it doesn't often get more specific than that. Yeah. And I think saying you have to think about these things really intentionally and very yeah. specifically and in terms of carbon would would probably change a lot of attitudes very quickly. I love that idea. And actually, you've just given me, Stephen, another idea. So a suggestion for you or your listeners that I would love to see is a portfolio based on the companies in the science-based targets initiative. So that mm -hmm. is, in my view, the most robust and scientifically rigorous and, and aligned with uh, Paris Agreement goals. So limiting warming to 1.5 or some companies have uh, plans to limit to two degrees. So those are companies that actually are walking the talk. I think they've they've gone through quite a rigorous process, as I understand it, to sign up for those. So I would love someone to to make it easy to invest in those companies. And maybe that is already what Etho Capital is doing. But I mean, another, I think a quick way that maybe your listeners could um, assess some of their existing portfolios, there are those carbon footprint tools for investment products already. Mm -hmm. But you could also look at science-based targets. So you'll probably find out, Current investments bad. Okay, now what do we do? So look right, at right, the right. list of science-based targets companies and use your expert financial knowledge to say, okay, these are the the leaders within this space, or this is you know where the market is going, or whatever. But reinvest in those companies that are actually walking the talk. Kim, is there anything else you'd want to say to our audience, or anything that we've we've missed in our conversation today? We really need to make capitalism compatible with climate stability. So please do that. Kim, thank you for joining me today. Uh, I, I will say that reading this book so far has been very moving for me. Um, so I'm going to give you one of those notes you mentioned, but I'll do it on, on air, quote unquote, on air. Um, it's, it's been very powerful. We're already looking at the way we eat um, and making some changes there. That was one of the big three that you mentioned we can do. When... In theory, I would I would go back to flying for work. We're going to have a look at that for sure. Um, and okay. driving when we're able to, we're going to address that, whether that's hybrid EV or just driving less. Um, so it's it's making it's 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 made me and I, I'm someone who's already always been aware of climate change. My dad was a a climate um, an atmospheric chemist, a scientist uh, oh. at a university here in the States for a long time. So always very well aware of it. But I think when you describe the target audience for your book, I think it's me. Like, I'm like, oh, that was me. Aware of it, not exactly sure how dire it was, not exactly sure what we can do, you know, as people. Oh, it's such a big problem. Da, 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 da. But it, it struck a chord with me in a way that, frankly, almost nothing else has. And I followed the IPCC. I followed COP26 spoken with a number of people who were really involved in this space. And I think just the way that you include human elements to it and what what climate change will mean in terms of loss and you bring in this, the psychological aspects of it, grief and mourning and, and finding new meaning and a way to move forward. I just thought it was so moving. So uh, thank you for writing it. I think it's fantastic. I've already started recommending it to people. Also for the audience out there, I am not someone, I am not a Jimmy Fallon who's going to sit here and every guest I bring on, I'm going to try and hawk their product or whatever they've written or their music. But I will say, in all honesty, please go read this. It's fantastic. I've been excited for the last two weeks to have you on the podcast. Uh, it, you, my wife is like, oh, when do you have that big interview with, with the author? I'm like, oh, it's coming up soon. Um, so just fanboying out a little bit. Apologize. It's been great. I love it. Thank you, Stephen. That's really kind. Thank you for your time today. It's, it's been fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for reaching this audience of uh, movers and shakers who know how the finance system works. It's the really important part of stopping climate change. Last week, my guest Jennifer Steinman touched on the idea that finance cannot continue to keep itself separated from the world. That everything is connected and that investors and people working in finance must start taking climate into account when making financial choices if we are ever to make progress. As Dr. Chris Gregg has put it on this podcast, climate change is not a problem to be solved with technology, it's going to be solved with finance. 
So to you, my audience of advisors and investors, you sit in the central point, this nexus of a remarkably important system that if we can leverage it properly, has the potential to make large scale and rapid changes in human caused emissions. As Kim and I discussed, and as podcast demographic research suggests, we are the 10%. And most of us listening are probably the 1%. We are the global elite. We have more wealth than 90 to 99% of all humanity on this planet. And our carbon footprint is massive. So I ask you to think critically about what you can do to lower your own carbon output, and more importantly, that of your clients. We all have three budgets to work with in life, though historically we only talk about two. There's time and money, and then there is carbon. I know, I know, you say, I'm a financial advisor. I can't ask them to change their lifestyle. That's out of my purview. I only talk about money. But don't you already have conversations like that? Don't you already work with them? to change their life so that it fits in their monetary budget in regards to the expected time they have remaining? I'm just asking you to tie in that third budget. You know, many people with wealth consider the legacy they're going to leave behind, and they take steps to ensure theirs is one they are happy with, and advisors, they help with that. The carbon that we put into the air right now, today, will be there for a thousand years constantly warming this beautiful little place we call home. They talk about legacy. We have 90 months. What kind of planet are we leaving behind us? Please visit some of the links in my show notes. I've got a lot of valuable information and resources there. And while I am never here to hawk someone's product, I just, I don't do that here. I will say that this book is mega please go find it and give it a read. It really had a profound impact on me and I've already started to make some of the big changes in my own life and that honestly my family's that will reduce our carbon footprint pretty dramatically. I wanna thank Kim for taking her precious time to chat with me and of course to Angelica Hester for her editing work. Instead of taking the time to leave me a review or send feedback and all that, I would be way happier If you took a serious look at your carbon budget and made a plan to do something about it, we can do this, folks. It's going to take a hard look in the mirror. We got this. 